Hey, this is The Moment. I'm Brian Koppelman. Thanks for listening. I'm thrilled. One of the smartest guys I know is here today, Ben Horowitz, who is... Look, normally it'd, it'd be enough if someone was a best-selling author, but Ben, uh, and he is, of two books, The Hard Thing About Hard Things and What You Do Is Who You Are, which is the new book, came out in October. Um, but Ben is really famous for being one of the most successful VCs um, and company uh, CEO founders um, in in the whole business world. And uh, his partners with Mark Andreessen, who is one of the most popular guests on this podcast. His episode is Must Listening. And I'm so excited to have his uh, Andreessen Horowitz partner, Ben Horowitz, here. Thanks for doing this, Ben. Thanks, Brian. And that's a, that's a great introduction and very hard to live up to. So thank no, you're you. You're going to be fine. You're going to be fine. Um, so I, here's where I, I, want, I want to start. And, and I'll say, um, what you do is who you are is an amazing book about culture. Culture is such an overused word. Nobody knows what it means. And um, you have defined why, defined it and defined why it's important, and we're going to get to it. But I'm always fascinated by starting at a more granular level with people, and especially someone as successful as you. What, what gets you out of bed in the morning? Yeah, that's a good question, and not even one that I expected, so that's good. Um, look, at this point, you know, I'm kind of, uh, and, and you, you know this, I mean, you, a lot of my life, most of my life, I was just trying to feed the family and make money and so forth, so then you get to this question of, oh, that's all taken care of, now what? And, um, you know, for me, and a lot of the reason why we started the firm and so forth, you know, it comes down to, you know, what kind of life do people have? And, uh, and a lot of that comes down to, you know, what's the environment that they're in like? Uh, and so when we thought of starting the firm, my whole concept was, can we make these places a better place to work and be and spend that much of your life? And that's, that whole journey is a little bit what led me to this culture idea, because culture is how people experience, how your employees experience you, how your customers experience you. And people, right, they, they don't even know what it is or can't define it. But what is your actual drive? Like, what is the driver now for you personally? Uh, you know, I, I often wonder what it is. You know, I spent a lot of my life on trying to understand ambition and how it shifts. Mm -hmm. And a lot of guys women, uh, non-gendered people your age who've had your success would kind of be walking off into the sunset now. So what... <laughs> yeah, that's always what we all imagine doing, isn't it? Yeah, so what, do you, what is it, do you think, that keeps you fired up? Yeah, well, you know, you know I'm in such a... I hate this word because it's used in this weird racial way now, but I'm in such a privileged position. Um, in that I can work with anybody who I want to work with. And, you know, that's just so exciting to me to be able to, and, you know, anybody I meet, they're like, well, it's great to be here with you. It's, um, you know, I get to meet people. I got to, you know, spoke to Jay-Z the other day. Like, that was super exciting for me. I get to work with people like Mark Zuckerberg. It's so, you know, it, it's still very exciting for me, I guess is what I would say. And uh, I never thought I'd be in this position. So now that I'm here, I'm happy. <laughs> and, and it's hard. To, I can't think of something that I'd rather do. Like I'd rather talk to Mark Zuckerberg than be at the beach. 
Yeah. Okay. I love this because this is a part of when I think about why I even do this podcast, which I don't have, there's right. no, yeah, there's reason, no reason to reason. do it. Yeah. It's not for the money, no. <laughs> despite I, what you may think. <laughs> I do the podcast because it is a way to connect with people mm-hmm. that, uh, who I admire or, and mostly who I think I can learn something from. And, and for me, curiosity has always been such a giant driver. Like yeah. I have, I, it's one of the things that success doesn't quench. For, for me anyway, right. this sort of curiosity about how people think and the distinctions they make makes me feel really alive. And I've always thought VCs are in such a great position to prosecute that curiosity. Yeah, no, absolutely. Because we see, I mean, that's the one of the greatest things about the job is just being able to see all the new ideas. And, you know, it, it's one of the things, it's actually a, a really important part of the culture of the firm is all new ideas are good in some way. Even if you don't like them as a business, even if, you know, the entrepreneur didn't do the work or whatever, just anybody coming with a new idea that they want to build, uh, you know, an organization and a business around is an amazing thing. And if you lose that, then, and you become cynical, then you just take the joy out of the job. Yeah, that was always the thing when I did, you know, I was in, you, we both have this experience in music. It's one of the reasons yes. we had a kinship <laughs> yeah. when we first yeah. met. And doing A and R, which I did artist and repertoire, you're constantly trying to put yourself in a position to be open to the next one being great, even though right. the last two hundred have been horrible. Yes. <laughs> right, right. Now it's very much like that. Yes. And you must have to reset. And you have to love the artist, right? Because if you hate the artist, then you're you're done. Yes. You. Yeah. Well, you have to love the whole idea of yeah. record these artists. Yeah. And you, so you have to be ready. And it's like the same thing when I, uh, David and I go in to auditions mm-hmm. and we're watching people come in. Even if the last 40 people who've read the part yeah. have not worked, you have to reset. Yes. Yeah. So do you practice yeah. that? Do you practice trying to create an open mind? Um, you, you know, I, I don't know that like what I do is as sophisticated as practice, but it is, um, I definitely talk to myself about it and go, okay, you know, that's kind of my morning. Like, how do I get ready? It's like, okay, I'm going to get to see some people bringing the new stuff. This is, this is amazing. One of them might be the thing that changes the world or. Are you able to keep listening throughout? Like, like, Mm -hmm. uh, I would think a challenge I would have is if three minutes into the pitch, I get that feeling it's not going to work. How do you get through the, how do you find a way to get some, extract some value out of that? Yeah. So here's generally uh, how I do that. And it's interesting. So one of the things that early on, um, you know, Mark and I are, uh, I would say both fans. And then, you know, there's a bit of a curiosity with uh, uh, Nassim Taleb, who's written for like a a brilliant, I guess five. Brilliant books. I've gotten to spend yeah. a few hours with that guy in yeah. my life, and it's and it, whether you know he he can be radio. People have yeah. very extreme reactions. To oh, his him. personality is wild. People but have like extreme, his, but he's his a genius. Is incredible. He's yeah. a, he's a brilliant thinker. So go ahead. And I I value any time I get to spend with that. Dude. Yeah, and one of the things that um, you know he talks about is this idea of the narrative fallacy, and where you you know you you fall into the narrative. Explain it. Explain the, the narrative fallacy. Yeah. So. Um, you know, people love stories, <laughs> as you know. And so somebody tells a story about something and you like the story 
the facts kind of fall to the side, right? Your, your ability to analyze it isn't so good. So one of the things that we started early on that helps with the thing that you're talking about is how do you get people off the narrative so you can get into the real thing? Um, because the narrative thing is, the narrative isn't the real thing, it's the story. Like what's the, what's the reality behind it? And so we start pitches, and this is something that um, I really like doing is I always start, I ask the entrepreneur like, you know, tell me your story. And they go, okay, well, you know, I graduated from, no, it's like, no, where'd you grow up? Like, how'd that go? <laughs> you know, what was your mom like? What did she do for a living? That kind of thing. And all of a sudden, they're off the narrative. And so that gives me an anchor later, you know, as they get into the business of, okay, why did you do it that way? And so it's always interesting to me how a person's life caused them to get to that point. And, um, and, and you can tell, you know, if they were work, the best entrepreneurs are always working on something hard. They have some weird discovery about it, and then that's like, oh, nobody knows this. I need to build a business behind it, as opposed to, um, okay, I thought people would think this was a good idea, which usually is not a good idea. I'm always amazed when people. I used to think it was impossible to calculate a spot in the market. Like Dave mm -hmm. and I, every good idea we've had has just literally come from fascination and curiosity. And yeah. going like, yes. this is fucking amazing. We, we, right. No one's mm -hmm. made this or, yeah. you know, I walked to a poker club. It right. was like, why has nobody told this story before? I don't understand. These people are fucking amazing. Yeah. But then I have met. And, and so that's the only way I know mm -hmm. how to create work that anyone's going to care about. Right. But then I, don't you find occasionally you meet somebody who's just like, looked at a situation, disambiguated, and gone, there's a gap, I can do this? Yeah, so people do that. Uh, I find I can't that, understand that, that it. it doesn't, you know, the hit rate on those is just low. Um, because it's kind of, uh, we, we always say, you know, there, there's this thing that a lot of Hollywood people will pitch, it's this meets that, or, you know. And those always seem like terrible ideas in business and in movies. Yes, they do. <laughs> you know, like, no, you got to come up with this, not this meets that. And so the thought, and just to go back to sort of like what get, because uh, I too like to knock people off the narrative, but I want to, I want to get there. Um, part of what gets you out of bed in the morning is the, the possibility that you're going to bump into something. I'm going to learn something new, somebody new who's got a new way of thinking about something. Yeah. And does it still get you amped up when that happens? Oh yeah. Yeah. No, it's, it's always um, super exciting and, and shocking. A lot of the ideas in the book are things that hit me so hard when I heard them. I was just because it was a perspective that I didn't have before. Um, and so that's, that's well, yeah, I was exciting. reading your book, especially now as you get older, it's harder to find that. Yeah, it's harder to be well, but sometimes the other thing happens I find, which yeah. is something that I thought I, I kind of understood. I'll suddenly understand in a new way now. Yes. Yes. And yeah. I'll, it'll unlock something. Right. Right. I, it will send me down a, a, a totally new path. And that's the best thing when you yes. get, you know, this thing where you see a painting you've seen a million times and suddenly mm -hmm. you see the painting. Yes. You haven't seen yeah, it. Yeah. Yeah. And then yeah. suddenly or a piece of, for me, it happens with pieces of music sometimes where definitely I'll suddenly hear a piece of music. Oh my God. And I, then, so I, on that, I had this yes. crazy experience uh, with Nas where we're listening to um, my melody. So the, Eric B and Rakim class. Which yes. I had listened to that song 500 times. Sure. Um, and I'm listening to it with him and he's really into the song, but he looks at the world so differently than I do that. So he plays the first few notes and he stops it. He's like, you know, 
what kind of music is that? Like, that's never been in a rap song before. I was like, oh, yeah, yeah that's, that's true. And then he, you know, check out my melody and have a cigar. And he pauses and he goes, Ben, why is he telling us to have a cigar? And I, I'm sitting there and I go, fuck, I don't know why he's telling us to have a cigar. And he said, then he plays the next line, I'm letting knowledge be born. It's a birth, Ben. He's letting he's passing out cigars at the birth, That's and the I was like, shit. "Oh shit!" That's the best shit ever. <laughs> oh my right. god! <laughs> and yeah, of course, you've listened to Eric B. and Rick Kim yeah. a million times. A million times. You're a I missed it every time. Yeah. What do you think it is that made you uh, uh, fall? Like, I, it's funny. I, yeah. I had this kind of revelation a couple. You probably know this, but I didn't realize that Pimple Butterfly was um, all about the music business. Yeah. Yeah. I but but yeah. then when you Kendrick's album, which is yes, one of the yes, great amazing, albums of amazing the last album, yeah. thirty years, you yeah. know. But I'd listened to that album a bunch of times. Yes. And then I was listening because I was thinking about... And you coming from the industry. Like, well, I missed it even. Yeah, yeah of course. Yeah. But yeah. I haven't been in that industry. But yes. But then when you realize the levels, you start unpeeling it. I had that moment where I was yeah. like, this guy's a genius. But then I was, I was like, he's really willing to risk. So this is one of other these things. And Yeah, musically it was so different too. Yeah. Yes, but, but, but the, the, the willingness to risk being misunderstood in order to say exactly what he wanted to say... Yeah. I found incredible. Right. And I think that that's something that's in your industry too, the, the risks people are willing to take to yeah, get their be, true vision out there. Yeah, because the, and we have a kind of saying at the firm, which is, um, you know, which Chris Dixon came up with, which is we're in the business of finding um, things, good ideas that look like bad ideas. And that's, which is sort of the Kendrick Lamar thing. Also, yeah. I can't believe you get to hang out with Nas. That's the coolest thing ever. Yeah. Hip Hop is Dead, which is like a lesser album, people think. And I, what a great album. And that track for me, yeah. Extended Clip and Body Em All yeah. Day, is like yeah. one of my favorite records ever. I, yeah. I listen to it all the time still. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, no, that's a, that's I would love to be cool enough to say to somebody when they pissed me off, you know, I'll load an Extended Clip and Body All Day. But <laughs> yeah. I never will be. <laughs> yeah, I no, can no, never no. say it. No, no, no. Well, Nas is like the coolest person in the world. That's How did you come to know him? Uh, it was a, like a crazy, that, that's also just a bizarre story where, um, so, you know, I been had a hip-hop block well yeah but how did you get immersed in the world of hip-hop because you're yeah. a white jewish dude with a pundit writer for a father like yeah well, my father yeah um Good how Lord. did you uh how did you get immersed in that world well i, I you know so credit to uh, i should give credit to my father in some way so my father's very involved in the, the black, black panthers, panthers early course, on yeah. and so i grew up that's the Your culture dad, I grew David up David Horowitz, yeah. very famous chronicler of sort of social, the big social questions of the day. And he landed yes. on various sides as <laughs> yes, his life sides, went, yeah. went on. And uh, um, uh, about however many years ago, he, he became an arch conservative. But, yeah. but wasn't that when you were growing up originally? No, he was actually the opposite. He was a communist, yeah. Um, so yeah, so I grew up in the culture, um, was, so, so I was a little bit oriented in, into it already, but then, you know, I went to school in New York in the eighties. Um, and that was the birth of hip. It was like being in, I, I imagine like at the birth of rock and roll at that kind of thing. And it was so exciting at the time and so forth. And so, of so course, you were at Columbia, but Rick was at, Rick was at NYU. You were yeah, at Columbia. Yeah. Yeah. Around the same time. It was, yeah, no, it was right then. It was right then when they, when he kind of came over from punk rock and joined Def Jam and did the Beastie Boys record and all that. Yeah, yeah. So just after Run DMC, because Run DMC feature in yeah. both of your books, you mentioned them. Yes, yes. Uh, yeah, no, it was right at that uh, 
Well, Run DMC's, I think the first album was 83 or 82. Uh, and so I got to New York in 84. But we had we had that wreck hard times and all that in California. So that was that was a big breakthrough record for me. You know, I was in high school at the time. And um, yeah, and you know, years later, well, this King is of Rock. You know, yeah. I could still I could still say, uh, yeah. all, I mean, I could still uh, recite King all. Of Rock. There is none higher. Sucker MCs call me <laughs> Sire to burn my Kenny Wilson fire. Once I'm gonna let I could do the whole thing if I had to, because yeah. when we're the same age, pretty much, <laughs> yeah. and like lived it. But but I so but it's but, McDaniel's, not McDonald's. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but yeah. but um, I'm DMC. I rock and roll. But <laughs> yeah. but the the uh, but so I dipped my you know. I'm a music guy. I loved hip hop. Yeah. But I, what caused your immersion in the culture? Yeah. So it, it was uh, the big thing that happened early, which caused me to be a rapper, which was just a, the craziest story. So uh, a friend of mine who I grew up with, you know, for, I mean, we were very, very close, um, got shot in this weird uh, kind of incident and was blind. Um, and so I'm at school and he's in California. And so I called, um, you know, I was calling to check on him all the time. And they're like, you know, Seth is completely depressed. He hasn't spoken for three months. You know, that we don't know what's going to happen. And in the meanwhile, I'm in New York and I'm listening to the cool day DJ Red Alert show and Chuck Chill Out. And these guys who have nothing are rapping about how great their sneakers are. And like, it's just so positive. And I get, you know, I'm a kid. So I get this idea in my head. Oh, if I could just get Chuck Chill Out and Red Alert to Seth, like it would change his whole outlook. And so I started recording the shows and like mailing the cassettes home. Awesome. And I'd like pause the commercials. I, I wouldn't go out on Saturday night because I'd be listening to these shows. And um, so, you know, I call back after sending these tapes and I'm like, how's it going? They're like, well, like, you know, he started to talk, but all he wants to talk about is hip hop and cool G DJ That's Red the Alert. Best. So that. So then when I went home that summer, we started a rap group called the Blind and Deaf Crew. <laughs> D-E-F, right? yeah. Because yeah. Deaf Jam, oh my God. So, and uh, what happened yeah. with that? Well, <laughs> we, we made a mixtape. Um, it, uh, you know, we did not get to succeed in getting signed. Um, but we, we had some good rhymes on there. And then, you know, I wrote it up years later, to, you know, kind of getting back on this point of who you get to meet. And... Red Alert and Chuck Chill Out made me like a gold plaque of it and signed it. So it was amazing. That's incredible. You yeah. mean after you had success in life? You, yeah, we, yeah you, was long after the rap career. You yeah. reached out and, or they reached out to well, you somebody, somehow. Well, somebody, somebody. Because you told the story. Yeah, read the story and told them about it and that kind of thing. Yeah. So let's loop into, because I could actually get lost in just the narrative of your biography, which is fascinating to me. You write about it a little bit in the first book, and then also people mm -hmm. um, can find lots of articles about yeah. that stuff. Yeah. Because you and your dad is its own. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Make the movie. A, David Streitfeld actually did a pretty good piece on it in the New York That's Times. That's a great yeah. piece. I read yeah. that piece. Yeah, it's yeah. an excellent piece. Yeah, he's piece. really talented. Um, but in order to to get toward talking about culture and why it's important in all of our lives because culture as a term I think is one of those things now that just washes we we hear the word we kind of ignore it because yeah. it has no meaning because it has mm -hmm. so many meanings right and uh, so I just want to start again stay a little forensic and, and granular and, and ask you that, that, uh, what is your process for sort of triangulating the issues of the day and what you're going to focus your attention on you have a lot of things yeah. demanding your time like your grown kids and what they need, your wife, your yeah. charitable interests, your book, your thing. How do you look at and triangulate 
Yeah, so I find I have to do it in kind of triangulate's a good word in a in I'm a two word ma- guy. Yeah, two main dimensions. So one is I have kind of okay, here's what I want to like just general goals for the year, like how I want to improve the firm or myself or this or that. And so okay, if it falls into that scope, then I'll try to prioritize it and if it's outside then like default out Um, but there's a different lens which is okay how interesting is that to me like how exciting is it because if you don't have that lens then you pass on too many new opportunities new ideas new networks new kinds of so first values first core value yes second well, I guess second would be it's one of your at the core. Values, yeah, one is like is, a logical process, and one is a feeling. <laughs> I guess is yes. the way it would. But I imagine say, actually yeah. in those goals, yeah, for the year, one of them is work on stuff that excites me. Yeah, well, <laughs> although that one's not, I, I don't actually have that in my goals. I should, <laughs> but it's 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 kind of an ongoing, always. Goal so year. first, it's like what's kind of like losing weight. Every right. year, I have that as a goal. Sure. So first, it's yeah. in the cone yeah. of what you're, and then second, it's what's interesting to me yeah and basically everything else uh, it, those two things take you through the day pretty much yeah pretty much pretty much i try not to overthink it in that sense and you know you have to be more and more disciplined it's very tricky when you have success because um a lot more people want to meet you than people you who you want to meet and so if you t- were to take all those you'd never meet anybody who you wanted to meet and that's that kind of thing yeah balancing that is hard balancing perceived opportunities versus real opportunities. No, exactly. Exactly. And it's challenging. Yeah. And you can't say yes if you don't say no. And it's a, it's a real, it's very difficult from a personality standpoint. How much do you worry about missed opportunities? Well, I think we, what you do for a living. Yeah. So that's the bigger worry than, um, doing something that doesn't work. Like doing something that doesn't work um, is just kind of part of the business, but not doing something that works amazingly is that's, that's a much bigger worry. Uh, and, and honestly, that's the only reason to not do something that doesn't work is it'll take up your time for doing the one that does. Right. Yeah. Yes. Right. It's so time that yet. So yet, how do you, even the most successful VCs of all time, yeah, you have to do one. The batting average is not yeah. high, right? And there's, you know, and it is true that the riskier things have the higher outcomes. Um, but you have to yeah. find something in it that makes you, I imagine, f- feel like it could be one of the ones. Yeah. No. Absolutely. Otherwise. Yeah. Yeah. So, do you ever feel not so, so your book talks a lot about the value of truth and the difficulty of truth? Mm-hmm. Do you ever I wrote this question down and do you ever worry about or how do you talk to yourself is a better way to say it about uh the fundamental lie that you're telling to founders all the time about success? Well, and what's that lie? Well, I, I mean the lie yeah. of um but part of you <laughs> from you experience <laughs> knows. Well, part of you from experience yeah. knows they're probably going to fail. Yeah. Do, but yet, I, yeah, what I, you're I, selling I, is because you have to is yeah. enthusiasm, belief. How does that? 
Yeah, so I find, so like one, I have an advantage. I wrote the hard thing about hard yes. things, so which kind of describes the misery and excruciating details. So people kind of know where I'm coming from on that. Um, but it's more like, you know, yeah. how do you lie to, I guess it's more when you know how many of these fail, how do you, how do you tell yourself? So this is one of my favorite lines from the, um, the last, from the hard thing about hard things, which I stole from Peter Thiel, um, which is, look, do you believe in statistics or do you believe in calculus? And as an entrepreneur, you have to believe in calculus. That means you don't believe I have a 8% chance of succeeding. You believe there's an answer and I'm going to find it. Right. And that's, if you don't have that attitude, don't start a company. Like if you're going, well, what's the probability of this working? What's the probability of that working? That never gets it done. Okay, so this is like, the whole podcast is worth it just to talk about this for a minute, right? This is, if David and I would have looked at the statistics on what happens when two guys go into a basement to write a screenplay mm -hmm. that nobody's paying them for. Yeah, why would you even start? Like, like we once, years, a uh, year later or something, we looked at the stats for that year and it was something like, like a hundred thousand spec scripts were written of those hundred thousand, um, yeah. 25 were bought of the 25 that were bought, you know, six were made. Yeah. And like, if we, so why, why try? What, but yet, yet we went in the basement yeah. and just every day we're like, absolutely. We're trying to write this thing. Yeah. You, yeah. you kind of, but it's a discipline now. But so, okay. It's one thing we were 30 years old. Dave was 28. Yeah. It's easy to do that then. It's harder to do it at 53. Yes, but I, I think it's it's the same belief, right? It, it's not, you know, and it's kind of an exciting, it's kind of like the guy in the movie, you've got a gun, you've got one bullet, There's and you have to hit the target, and that's that. And you don't think about what are the chances of me hitting the target. So you, you believe it every time. You believe it every time. Every time, yeah, you have to. Right. I never think about, oh, what are the chances of this succeeding? I'm like, how do we get the right team? How do we okay, make the so, right moves? How do we get the right money? So in? how do you spread, and this isn't right, how do you spread that message to your whole team? Because for you and Mark, the consequences are very different. You mm -hmm. guys are set for life 20 times over. Right. You've actually, and from the narrative standpoint, you can tell yourself you've won. You've done it. You're successful, right? But you have... A bunch of people who work for you who are in some way going to be judged on what they recommend, who are in mm -hmm. some way going to be held to account, whose futures, even though they don't get to come up in your company, their, their work that they do for you is going to really affect what happens going forward. Right. How do and, and even as much as you say, well, our culture is we take these risks together, we make these decisions together. Sure. Human instinct is, fuck, I'm going to be blamed. Yeah. How do you manage, fuck, I'm going to be blamed? Um <laughs> Well, you know, and, and, and even if not by us, by the industry or yeah, what have you. That's, yeah. yeah. How do you yeah, manage very that from everybody? Fuck, I don't want to take a risk. Fuck, I'm going to be blamed. Yeah, you know, I, I, I don't want to pretend like I can manage something that I can't actually write. Like everybody's personal psychology is going to um, have a lot to do with it. But you have to be able to – you have to – if you can't manage their psychology, you have to be able to manage the – I mean, what you do is who you are. You have to be able to manage what they do – and in hopes that that'll change it, right? Yeah, so the culture in the firm is very much, like we we definitely push hard to only be encouraging and go, wow, that entrepreneur is doing everything. I have a company now that's in like yeah, serious trouble. <laughs> um, but, you know, the thing that I always emphasize when I talk about it is like, 
man, she's doing everything. Like, this is a fight to the death, and she is not effing around. I mean, she's going to get this done or die trying, and, like, that's what we, that's what we live for, like that. That's the, that's the actual well, what thing. what about the people in the – okay, the, but what the about the person who first about, brought that – whether that was my, but you know, yeah. someone junior at your, at your firm, how do you encourage them? Bring us the ideas that might actually blow up in your face and you won't be penalized. How does that get uh, disseminated? Well, I think the won't be penalized is, is the daily behavior on how we treat them. And, Go you know, like I said, that. the thing, the, the, the judgment on the judgment is always, and there's a great book called Thinking and Bets. I don't know if you've... By which, Annie Duke. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So she does a great job of describing, look, the process and the outcome are not... They're, they're separate. In VC, it's, it's exactly like that. You have the process and the outcome. And so we focus... Because you can't just say, well, it doesn't matter because you need people to work hard and be prepared and understand things. And there's a lot that goes into the job, Um but we try to really evaluate people on, as uh, Jeff Bezos calls it, the inputs. So you're getting evaluated on, like, did you run the right process? Did you do the right inputs? Um, and then if you did, like, the output's going to be what the output's going to be. And is there still upside on the output for them as well? Yeah, yeah, no? because it's shared economics, definitely. Like, so it's there's not, still upside we're, yeah. on that, yes. but, but downside only on the on the sort of process piece really yeah the downsides on the process we we rate people on the process and you know it's funny because we do get criticized for that a lot of people in the industry evaluate you know kind of a general partner after 10 years after the outputs are in and we don't we rate them much earlier because we're rating them on the inputs uh and yeah, we've gotten some flack for that, but i believe in it you because that creates it that's the environment you want to walk into work with a bunch of people looking at possible upsides. Yeah, finding the possible genius idea with the possible genius. And, you know, maybe we get it wrong, but... The, well, this makes a lot of sense. Yeah. I mean, I had one of my favorite podcasts I've done recently is with Mike DeLuca, a great movie producer mm -hmm. and good friend of mine. I brought it up on a couple in a row because he said some one of these insights in a way that I hadn't exactly thought about it. I, I was saying, what do you... You know, talking about this, he's had an three Academy Award nominations, Best Picture, all yeah. this incredible stuff, and and long relationship with directors and takes chance on people. And he said, right. "Well, I just decided a long time ago, like at the very beginning of my career, I would judge a director on their best work. Most people in my business judge a director when they fail." Right. He goes, "I always think if a director was able to pull this off once, she's going to be able to reach that height again." Yeah. And and he said it's a huge distinction for me, for you know, for, uh, in that in that seeing that allowed me to... Well, you get to higher heights yeah. because actually the best directors take chances that cause them to have bad right. work. Because he yeah. said, listen, every director is going to have a flop. Yeah. They're all going to have a flop. Yeah. But only a few we'll are going to make transcendent work. Yeah, strength, not lack of weakness. And, and he's the guy who really yeah. picked Fincher and put Fincher on the map. He made seven with Fincher. Hmm. And then he got to work with David again and they made Social Network together. So like yeah. that... Early on, he was like, well, this guy has the possibility to do this kind of work and I don't care about Right, the other side of it. Yeah, but it's hard. Isn't that a hard discipline? Yeah, no, it, it's very difficult because, especially if you socialize it. So this is because when explain that, go further. So if you're making a hire or making a decision yourself, you can go, okay, I'm going to focus on the strength, not the, you know, what weaknesses or, or or lack thereof they have. But if you do like just if you're even looking at like an employee and you have eight people interview them people are going to find things wrong. And then those wrong things get discussed. And then that becomes the focus. And 
you don't talk enough about, yeah, but like they're a super genius at this thing. And that's a thing we actually need. Uh, and that's, that, that's where you blow it all the time because then you get mediocre. If you get somebody who's got nothing wrong with them, they're always mediocre. The people who are truly brilliant usually have something horribly wrong with them. No doubt about it. Yeah, yeah. hundred. That I found that to be true in almost every yeah. area of life. Oh, yeah, almost. Uh, Steve Jobs, classic example. I mean, like you read the stories about him, you guys. This guy's just like a horrible human being on some level. But like that's how those guys are. You know, they're the the people who are that brilliant often have something that I mean, yeah, everybody you hates. How, the, how yeah. the general culture is shifting in that because those guys were were war, and it was mostly men mm-hmm. who were horrible in that way. Yeah, they were often rewarded and not penalized yes and uh i think it's a good thing that that has to start well some of the yeah some of the things yeah which are incredibly harmful have to stop yeah no doubt but it is a fascinating the duality yes and the allow the i mean i've um well and you hear like quincy jones talk about uh you know miles davis or prince you know like they're, they're very lopsided people Wait, who was the second one you said? Prince. But they were quite yeah. different. Very different, but both I Geminis. Both Geminis. <laughs> uh, that's all. I mean, the fact that you would that say both Geminis that. is insane. Let me just say. You're like one of the most rational people told me I've that. ever He's met. Because, like, you know, I'm a Gemini. He's yes. like, oh, fuck. You know, Miles hilarious. Davis and Prince. But I mean, um, My- Miles Davis is a physically abusive person and Prince yeah. wasn't. But they're yeah. both geniuses. And it is. Yes. Fa- I mean. Amazing geniuses. Yeah. And genius. Uh, the allowances we give geniuses in, but can't that be, mm-hmm. so you talk about culture a lot. How do you decide in a culture what allowances you're going to make for genius? This is a, this is one of the most difficult things. And the, um, you know, the great, the, the analogy that I love was one that uh, John Madden had <laughs> of all people, which was, look, you can hold the bus for one guy. <laughs> so there can be one guy on the team that's so brilliant that you hold the bus, but if you hold the bus for everyone, you'll never make it to the game. Right. And that's, well, John Wooden said, I'm going to treat you all fairly, but not equally. Yes. Right. I I like, I love all my players the same. I like them all different. Right. Right. He he literally said, I'll treat everybody fairly, but not equally. Yes. Because Kareem, who was Lou Alcindor then, I'm going to treat. And also right. A genius who had probably was culturally, a tricky guy in that he's a he's a different type of personality, not not abusive or anything like that. But he's well, not like life, a normal well, regular. Yeah, he's a fascinating case study. Yeah. Well, the question is, if you have someone like Kareem, do you then build the whole culture around him? around because his his so, around range, yeah. his outlook? Because actually, you know, his was formed by a series of kind of like betrayals in a way, right? Which right. changes, right? You. And you don't really want a. Um, culture that paranoid i would say right but but it, is it par- well is it paranoia if the things really <laughs> they're really out to, to get you, you? yes like yes, Carino, yes. when you think about who he was and where, where he was i mean i've often thought i think about him a lot because imagine having you know, that iq and that that intellect in that body created a kind of expectation dichotomy yes yeah. That made life really challenging, incredibly gifted and amazing, but yeah. really challenging, right? Yeah, yeah, in a way. yeah. Oh, yeah, definitely. Like uh, you know, I think that um, you know he his life would have been amazing and so different if he was five eight. Yeah, right. He could have been you if yeah. he was if he were yeah. five. No, absolutely. Yeah. You know, that, you know he is that he's one of those people. Yeah, and um, I, it's hard to imagine what it would be like to have looked at the world from his 
perched. He's written books. You can, you can, you can. Yeah, his you, books are really amazing. Yeah, they're, they're amazing. the best sports books I've read. Yeah, he's yeah. well, he's just that yeah. smart. It's a ama- yeah. an amazing thing to that that guy walks among us. I've never met him. I shook his hand once, but yeah. I never got to talk to him. And man, I'd really like to talk to him someday. Yeah. So. Talk about what are kimchi problems and why do they matter? Because I <laughs> loved this in the book. Yeah. I love kimchi, but I loved <laughs> the idea of kimchi problems. Uh, how'd you come up with that and talk a little bit about it? Oh, well, this this is a funny thing. So actually, that that kimchi problem thing. Uh, so kimchi, it's a kimchi problem, which means... The deeper you bury it, the hotter it gets. Uh, so it's a great metaphor. Actually, I can't take credit for it. When I when I was a, a bellhop working as a bellhop in high school, the guy who came to fix the phone system said we had a kimchi problem, <laughs> and I really? never forgot that. I was like, and that is a great thing. That yeah, forever? Yeah. Well, I'm like, I am actually like you in that way, which is I listen to language so carefully, <laughs> and and I just save it in my mind. I can't help it. So. Yeah, me, yes, yes. Yeah. So, uh, so that's what that was. But you know, but as, talk about how that how kimchi problems manifest. Yeah. So, like as a CEO, there's always, um, you know, when you're running an organization, there's something that you see and you go, ah, you know, I, I know that's a problem, but like confronting it's going to be a lot of work, and you know, it's going to hurt people's feelings and these kinds of things. And I'm so busy, I don't, you know, I have to deal with something else. And you let it go. You know, it's just scary. So you kind of run away from the problem and hope it dies on its own. But that, those are almost always kimchi problems, which means they're just going to get hotter and hotter until they burn down the organization. So, you know, how do you running, discover them? Oh, you, you know, well, one, you have to be open to bad news. This is a, a well, very yeah, well, I'm going to bad news yeah. next, so I agree. Yes. Yeah, and you really, and that's a cultural thing. And I always uh, like to refer to, you know, for those of us from computer science world, in router protocols, um, there's this saying, you know, bad news travels fast and and good news travels slow. Uh, And it's kind of the design of the protocol is you want the bad news to get to you immediately. Uh, Very hard to do in a human organization because people feel the delivering bad news reflects on the messenger. And it's very easily, you know, and even in MBA books, don't bring me a problem without bringing me a solution, that kind of thing, stops that bad news from traveling. And you really have to encourage it. And the way, the way I did it is I kind of flipped the equation when I was CEO. And I said, look, I know things are messed up in the organization. I know they're in there. And so to come to the staff meeting, you have to bring me one. Otherwise, you don't know what's going on. And so it kind of been, oh, it's a pride to know something that's going on. And then if you get used to talking about them and dealing with them, then, you know, it's just run-of-the-mill news as opposed to bad news. How do you get people – how do you then – right, I can frame bad news in various ways, right? I can frame it dispassionately, but Mm -hmm. often in a culture, even in a family, you got a brother and a sister. uh, They might each bring you the bad news with an entirely different subset of reasons why the bad news happens. Oh yeah, there's always a, so uh, yeah. Right there, I call that lying to yourself. Well, there's <laughs> a big narrative component <laughs> yeah. to there's a big narrative component to bad news. Yes, delivery. Absolutely. So how? And I think what people are afraid of is if I start telling this bad news. First of all, I better tell it in a way that it, mm-hmm. it's clear that happened over that bad news happened over there. I wasn't anywhere that right. explosion happened. I was actually yeah. across the country. Yeah. And it was, and I don't want to say it was Petey's fault, but yeah. I will say. 
I did see Pete's footprints right yeah. near. So like, how do you deal with all of that stuff when? There's... Yeah. So look, I think from a process standpoint, you have to, you know, and it's weird to say, cause we, we have, you know, there, there are leaders who do the opposite and have success and you go, and then I think a lot of the way leaders are portrayed is wrong, but you really have to separate the people and the problem and deal with the problem. Look, you're dealing, I, I always think of, I'm dealing with people performance on a wholly different time dimension than I'm dealing with the problems because if you're trying to do difficult things as an organization, bad stuff, people are going to miss it. They're going to, you know, bad things are going to happen. You're not challenging them if they don't right. kind of swing and miss or lose a deal or, you know, mess up a financing or whatever it is that puts your company in jeopardy. So you really have to start with the problem and okay, how did, as a group, like, how did we not communicate on this? You know, yeah. was the product just not good enough? Like, what happened? And get to that. And then completely separately, if you have somebody who's routinely, like, not doing their job and causing a problem, that's you deal with that, but not together, never together. Is that stuff – but it, how long does it take in a – because, you know, in a family, in an organization, in a group, how long does it take – and accountability is dangerous in that way, by the way. I mean? think accountability is one of the most... Well, because if you hold the person accountable to the thing, then right. that that causes real cultural issues. But how long does it take to turn a culture into a place where um, bad news isn't uh, shining brightly in red, where it's just, hey, here, here's what's what's happening. Over in this sector, we're having this issue. I don't really right. know how to fix it yet. Where that's just a part of the discourse. Like, how long does it take and to shift a mindset? In that way? Yeah, you know, like it depends on the scale of the organization and the and the kind of intensity with which you do it. Um, but to me, cultural change always has to be a daily item. So if everybody's not running into it every day. Um, then you probably aren't going to change things. And if they are, it changes very fast. And so it's kind of, you know, how, it's that you, sort of thing. How do you deal with the sticky, like how do you deal with the really sticky ones where you know, I, I used to play in a poker game. This was mm -hmm. 30 years ago. <laughs> and it was all a bunch of, and, and this this is not, I'm not telling a story for the self-aggrandizing part of it. I I don't know another way to say this, so this is going to, I'm going to sound like I'm trying to say something good about myself. I'm, I'm truly not. Uh, but I was in this game. It was all a bunch of fucking white dudes who were mm -hmm. all 23. Right. And one guy told a joke that really bothered me. These dudes all yeah. played every, they played every, whatever, Wednesday. Mm -hmm. I got to go to that game once a month or something. This is maybe the second or third time I was going to be in it. And I said something. Yeah. I said like, ah, dude, come on. We can't. I, that's wrong. Don't yeah. do it. Because I'd been trained by my friend. You know, at the time, I mean, I was super young. I was mm -hmm. just trained by my friends who were people of color. Like, if you don't speak, whatever. Yeah. But I said this thing and it completely destroyed their poker game, right? They, mm -hmm. it I ruined their whole time. Yeah, yeah. And I was never invited back. And then two months later, I was told why I was never invited back. Right. <laughs> and it was yep, no yep, great, yep, yep, yep. you know, but. You were excommunicated from I was the just like out of society. that. I was just out of that situation, sure. right? But I, and I, I, I didn't, there must have been a better way to have, to address that, have that conversation, change it. 
But it is the kind of thing, and I could see like probably there were three other dudes at that game. I I did a calculation where I didn't really care about any of those guys. Mm-hmm. Like I I know I was just like well, d- d- fuck it. I know there were like at least three other guys at that poker table who yeah. were as uncomfortable as I was. Mm-hmm. But I, there was no way to sort of like make that good somehow. Yeah, so I would say, look, culture and... and, and so it's the yeah. same thing. I was just say, it's the same thing where you walk into a, a series of meetings in a corporate world now, mm-hmm. and you notice it's always just guys in the room. Mm-hmm. How do you begin to broach that where you don't seem like a caricature, you don't seem like yeah. you, you're... You, you know what I mean? How do you manage that stuff and encourage it? Yeah, so I think, look, it's... Um, when you're in a company, there's what you can do as the leader, like the hierarchical leader of the organization. Um, and then there's what you can do through the code, you know, i.e. whatever the cultural code and set of values are, which kind of should sit above even the leadership in a way. Um, and then what you can do as an individual, if people are in their code and like outside of your code, that that's going to be complicated, and there are you know which is why um, it's so amazing when people can move a whole like Jay Z was like one of the great guys of all times at this of moving the entire culture in a direction um, because he was so admired and so cool and so articulate that he could do that. But that's a that's a very special thing. Like, but how I, do you create a culture where people? I, I don't know. That there's a a real answer I can give you on but, that. Because but how do you create a culture with the leader of an organization? So you are the mm-hmm. leader that allows for encourages uh, people to have moments of insight that can shift the culture. Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I think it that really comes down to uh, a directness. Well, let, let me let me uh, go ahead tell you a, a, like a quick story on that because it really comes down to directness and um so one of the parts of the book uh, is a part on prison and how prison culture develops based on a friend of mine chaka Senghor. and wh- i love the tooth i love the toothbrush yeah. story yeah it's yeah. spectacular so yeah so that was a great story yeah so uh crazy kind of after story on the book was um you know people read the book and one of the companies that i'm on the board of said do you think we could hire Shaka as like a management consultant? And now, and which I totally didn't expect. You know, he spent 19 years in prison, and so forth. And, you know, he's, a, you know, a, a writer now. Um, but I was like, hey, you know, that would probably be a good idea. So, but I had no idea what would happen. And uh, so he goes and does his, you know, he flies to Dallas uh, to do kind of his first consulting time. I'm like Shaka, how'd it go? And he it gets to this question you're asking, um, and he said. Well, you know, it was inter- I, I said to the guys, I'm like, hey, um, so like, what are you struggling with? And they said, well, we're struggling with um, scale and trust, which this is kind of the problem with bringing up an issue like that. The organizations get bigger. You don't even know who you're talking to. Now you're trying to change yes. their way of doing things and so forth. And he says, look, when I was in the joint and I'm running the Melanix, you know, we'd have guys who would like talk about each other you know, talk about people, spread rumors about them, this kind of thing. And so I get my leaders together and I say, so you guys, you know, these guys, they're, they're, they're spreading all this talk. They're not telling people to their face. It's all behind the back. They're like one level up from snitches, right? They're bad guys. And uh, they all go, yeah. And I say, no, you're the bad guys because you're listening to it. You got to stop that. You got to get it to direct. 
And that's really the cultural change you have to make. I mean, get it to direct, but that can be explosive like, too, right? Getting those two guys to talk to each other can be a big problem in yeah. that setting. <laughs> well, no, it, it, it could be, but um, that's, how, that's how you get to loyalty when you, you have to get an understanding. You have to talk it out, not, not talk it behind. What happened to you in the poker game is you brought it up direct and they all got together and they were like, fuck that guy. Yes. As opposed to dealing with you and letting you defend yourself. And that's, that's the problem. That's the cultural problem. Right. Because, but, but you can, calling into qu- question, right? I now know as a, uh, I would handle that situation. So I've played many poker games since and learned how to be direct in an indirect manner. I've learned how to, yeah. how to not let those jokes happen in any game I'm in, yeah. which anytime you get a bunch of fucking dudes together, yeah. they're going to sort of, I've learned how to, um, shift it without just being as sort of like, hey man, that's not okay, blah, blah you know, without getting in a soapbox. Because what the soapbox did was make that guy think I thought he was a bad person. Right. You you are now right attacking his character. His sure. character, yeah, yeah. as opposed to finding a way to to. And his reaction is, well, you didn't understand the joke. I know a lot of black people. Like, what are you talking about? I was doing it in a different way. Yeah. Right. All yeah. that. So instead, you know, you. But it's hard to find a way to, um, and also, uh, partially probably because of like whatever position I've been able to put myself in yeah. in life, it's different if I yeah. articulate it than when yeah. I was 22. Yeah, and you know, like one, one thing that works actually, uh, my partner Mark is really, hey, I know you're not a racist, <laughs> but like if somebody who was like heard that, they might judge somebody coming into this game. Like you don't want to, you don't want to do that. Sure. Yeah, like that's, that, that's yeah. a kind of a much better approach than what the fuck are you doing? And the whole cancel, which is what's so bad in the culture now, right, is... Anytime anybody says something that you don't like or might be close to the line, like people jump on them, you know, you're a racist, like cancel that person, this and that, or you're a sexist or you're a monster. Um, and there's no dialogue. And so nobody, so nobody has the op- you're a- saying nobody has the opportunity to change. Oh yeah. Like the worst way to cure racism is to call people racist. That creates racism. That's exactly what that does. I mean, it's a what do you mean it creates thing. it? Explain. Well, look, if I'm, uh, you know, in my mind, you know, not racist. And I'm trying, you know, like I don't, I don't judge people on this and that. And then you call me, you're a racist, you racist white motherfucker, you know, white privilege asshole, da, 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 da. That's going to move me to a place where I'm going to end up on the side of racism much more likely than it's going to move me to a place where I'm on the side of equal opportunity. And that's a, because it's going to sp- spark in you some kind of anger because you're like that you're the you're from the culture of whatever you are social justice and i'm from my culture and you've just made it clear to me i hate your culture that that's what that does so how do you take how do you manage and it's hard because it's emotional how do you manage that's what i was that's what i was how do you manage emotionally alive issues and conversations, which in a cor- corporate yeah. culture, those things happen all so the time. So this is one of my big, so I had this, uh, <laughs> it's actually one of the things in the book, you know, I had this guy who was very volatile, emotional, um, but super talented. And the thing that I would 
say but the the trick i had in his psychology was also very competitive like the most competitive person i had and so he would come in that, that motherfucker's not doing his job da, 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 da. and i was like did you talk to him i yelled at him and i was like so like you're just totally ineffective you couldn't sell him you suck at selling and he's a sales guy he's like oh and it's like you can't figure out how to convince him like that's the challenge can you actually change something or are you just going to make yourself feel better by like letting your emotion out and you're totally ineffective and you suck and that's the you know to me that's the thing that i think everybody has to consider are you trying to make yourself feel better or morally superior or are you trying to actually get to an understanding and improve kind of people's view of the world and i think you know and i look we have a uh, I don't like to get into politics, but a somewhat divisive leader, uh, extremely divisive leader. And I think people are falling into the trap of picking a side. And that's exactly the worst thing that we can do as a society, of course, is I'm on one side, you're on the other side. We're supposed to be kind of working on this together. We're never going to make any progress on any of these cultural issues, and we haven't. So this might be our first real yeah. disagreement. Oh, uh, good. Because, <laughs> well, because I think, well, yeah. if, if you – what about if you see – this is how I'd frame it. Mm-hmm. What about it? Because I agree, uh, Manichaean outlook or Manichaean uh, <laughs> does not generally serve anyone. Yeah. Except in times of existential crisis. And if you decide you're in an mm-hmm. existential crisis, then don't you have to draw f- not dotted lines, but straight lines and decide which side you're on? I. Th- so, like, you know, if we're in Nazi Germany or if we're in... Um, well, no, say you're in no, say you're in the Weimar Republic. Yeah. Say you're in the Weimar Republic. Mm-hmm. You believe that... You, you know, just believe it. Like, you've right. done some work and you think yeah. that you're headed that way. Yeah. Or you're in Brazil before... We don't have to even go Weimar Republic. Like, let's say you just feel like the conditions for fascism are mm-hmm. on the ground. Right. What's your obligation? But so, uh, so your obligation... Maybe to act, but like, let's talk about what's the effective way to act. And so I'm really getting into effectiveness. Yes, me too. Yeah, me too. And I think it's very difficult um, to be compelling to the broader culture if you make assumptions about people and their intentions and attack them so that you can make clear what side you're on. And I give you just the really great example in our country of this effectiveness dichotomy, you had Malcolm X, who I think, I think the Nation of Islam actually had some great cultural ideas, uh, you know, coming from Marcus Garvey that are better cultural ideas than the actual civil rights movement had. But Martin Luther King's approach was way more compelling, and he convinced so many more people than Malcolm X ever did um, by not making assumptions about intent on the other side by taking the moral high ground and saying, look, I'm going to assume everybody's a good person and I'm going to demonstrate through action and through words what I think the high ground is. And as opposed to... But that works right up to, until... That works right up until institutional... Can't, like, right, that works right up until work will set you free, right? I mean, I'm saying that works But at some point, words point. don't work. Like, at some point, it's like a military, like it's a, it's a revolution. You know, the, 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 there are limits to all of this, but I'm just saying... 
words are more effective unless you're trying to divide the country. Like Vladimir Lenin wanted to divide things, sharpen the contradictions, the whole thing. Trump yes. like likes the division. Well, Malcolm like, wanted to do that yeah. too, by and, the way. And Malcolm wanted to divide things. So if that's your goal, <laughs> to, to create the division... Um, why do you think Malcolm's consider, why do you think Malcolm's ideas though have had such traction for so many people who are people you admire? Yeah, so I think the thing that Mal- that Malcolm got more right than anybody, um, particularly if you're an African American person in the United States, is self reliance, self determination. Amazing. I mean, that's what if you look at hip hop hip-hop never got like there was never a hip-hop protest put us on the radio give us a record deal and so forth the whole industry even like the r&b industry was so anti-hip-hop they had to, well they amazing. had to, they got two hours on ktu yeah. at night yeah I mean, that that's was what they it. got they yes. got two hours on ktu nothing but the culture was so weak 100 percent self-reliant that it they you know and bls rock. right bls and ktu they had yeah. a couple hours uh, per week that they could do a yeah saturday show. night and then ralph mcdaniels did video right. music box and but they built the whole thing themselves um and that is actually what works in the u.s like yeah it's going to be unfair but we can still do it uh is actually the is culturally effective most effective thing? thing is that effective okay so people who work at places where they see hypocrisy, right? Mm-hmm. So someone like me, I'm not getting drawing, dragging you into politics, right? But someone like me, I look at Mitch McConnell and I see hypocrisy. Yeah, yeah. Right. I, I look at what he did and, with and, America. I see, uh, and I see not even hidden hypocrisy. I see bald faced hypocrisy. Yes. Right. And that's been that way. By, by the way, if you read the history of the country, like, there's always been a Mitch McConnell. Yeah, there's been a lot of a <laughs> yeah, lot of like those. Always. But that, that's the constant. But when you see a figure like that. being effective but Mm -hmm. often those figures get called out over time they get called out how are you supposed to have a civil i don't understand anymore i'm actually this full genuine like i don't understand where civil discourse about this stuff is supposed to live like i watched the events last few weeks i watch so we can very reasonable people can disagree about whether Trump should have been removed from office. Super mm-hmm. reasonable people can disagree about that. Sure, hard to, for anyone reasonable to disagree about the, the actions he's taken since then. So <laughs> yeah. it's hard for even anyone reasonable to disagree about that. So yeah. you look at that and look at what they must have known. How mm-hmm. are you supposed to stay? But uh, I think how are you supposed to try to change minds when the cultural pull is so great? Yeah, no, look, I, I think it's certainly gotten difficult because I think that um, kind of thing is winning out. But I think we got here from a kind of labeling process that, you know, ended up backfiring. So let me kind of tell you the... So I actually had this funny story uh, conversation with my friend Steve Stout before the election where he said, you know, like I went to visit Eminem in like 2001 and... Eminem's like living in a trailer and, you know, his mom's a whatever meth head and so forth. And he's saying like, why am I like the privileged guy? Like, I, you know, I live in a trailer. Like, how, how did that happen? And Steve says to me, he goes, Ben, like, it's so bad. He's like, nobody represents, there's no Jesse Jackson, there's no Gloria Allred for poor white people. It's like rich white people don't even fuck with poor white people. Like they don't even give to like poor white charities. Like they're out on nothing. 
And I think that those were the guys getting labeled, you know, all day long, no conversation, no convince them just like you're a white trash racist, you're this. And I think, you know, that kind of thing is what gets you to, it was a contributor, it's not the only thing, but it's a contributor to kind of getting to this stupid point that we're in now where you can't even have the conversation. You're saying that the language... Well, I just think that the, the, I'm going to just go make an assumption about somebody else and their motivations and their intentions based on my view of morality in the world. Um, I, I would just say the yeah. answer to that privilege, just I'm going to yeah. just because uh, people yes. will email me. I mean, the answer to that question that Steve, I know Steve Stout too. And, yeah. Uh, I, I hope that, uh, that this next thing is crazy, but, um, <laughs> but uh, the answer is the opportunity afforded to uh poor white person, even then living in a trailer, the opportunity yeah. the country afforded them was just greater than a black person in that same spot yeah. that you could just look at it. And that was just, the yeah, way the but you're, you know, you're racialized, but, but I think that that's the thing that, um, right or wrong, like you racialize things, you racialize things. And then this is why, uh, you know, I think Silicon Valley keeps struggling with diversity because they racialize, look, the problem the big problem on diversity, like people can't see talent. You know, they can't see talent they don't have. And so they don't move to hire it. And now you want to racialize it. And so now people are literally hiring on gender and color of skin. And they get in the companies and you look at the attrition rates and they're just way, way higher. And it's like a bad place to work. Whereas if you would take the time to do the work and see the talent, it's a very different equation. You would hire even from those well, pools like, so, better, you're saying. So let me give you the, another Steve Stout story from the book. So he calls me up one day. He goes, Ben, I used to be president of Sony Urban Music. And I'm like, yeah, I know that Steve. You know how Steve is. <laughs> and he goes, and it was so stupid because it was Sony Black Music. But they made me call it Urban Music because Black Music would be racist. And I'm like, that's dumb. And he goes, no, no, no. Because I called it Urban Music, they wouldn't let me market in rural areas like no black people live in the country. And I'm like, wow, that's stupid. And he goes, no, 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 that's not what's stupid. I was Sony, Sony urban music. I had Michael Jackson. What white people don't like Michael Jackson? It wasn't fucking urban music, it was music. And then if you fast forward and you go, okay, now there is no urban music. There's no black section in Tower Records. There's no, it's streaming. Look at Spotify top 100. Over 90 of the songs are black music. That used to be a niche business. They made it a niche business by their program. Well, that, yes. Right. And we could do this a whole, is, you and I could literally. We do the same thing on talent in Silicon Valley where we have like the urban talent department, the head of diversity, where instead of fixing the talent department, which is like absolutely fixable. I mean, we, I go through a lot of this in the book, but if you can see the talent, if you can understand the talent coming from people who aren't you, who are coming from a different culture, a different perspective, have kind of just different things that they're good at, then you don't, you won't have it. Like the talent is there. You just can't see it. And I think that, you know, what happens in political discourse is you get into these things where you're trying to stop racism by labeling people by the color of their skin. Like that's just fucking stupid. Like, it's just exactly the opposite. That is racism. Like, the whole, I mean, white privilege idea was created by an old white woman. Like, it, it, it wasn't even a thing that came, like, not that it's, there's not a real thing to 
how race works in the country. It's absolutely real. I just but want to like, say people don't know this. Like you're, you get into the discourse like that. It's I very mean, your, dangerous. Your children are uh, identify. I mean, people would look yeah. at your kids and they would. They're black kids, right? Yeah, absolutely. So, how has that sh- like shifted the way you understand this stuff? Looking at how they go through the world or how they're. Yeah, well, the, you know, it's you know people make these uh, and wild assumptions about like who they are based on their race and what is that good what do you mean wild assumptions well i mean my uh my son has this comedy routine that's hilarious where he says um i'm black i'm mixed you know you know both racially and emotionally um and then he, he says uh i'm black and jewish which somehow makes mexican <laughs> And then he starts speaking in Spanish, and he's like, I had to do it to this and that and the other. But this whole idea that um, you can make, like we're baking into society that like you should make a judgment on somebody based literally on their race is just such a bad idea uh, because it kills the thing that we started the conversation with, which is curiosity is the most powerful thing. Um, And you try and like use your reptile brain to figure out, oh, that person's tall. They must be this, <laughs> you know, they must be now Kareem Abdul-Jabbar has got to be a basketball player. <laughs> yeah. And, and all these things, it's just the dumbest stuff in the world. So I think it, you know, if you're going to make society better, you got to move people to evaluate individuals. Yeah. One of my favorite things is that, um, I don't know that this is exactly Daniel Kahneman Tversky thing, yeah. but it's like it is this insight that, if you meet um, a really ugly, fat, short person in um, a high position, yeah. you know that that person is just so much better than anybody <laughs> yeah, else would yeah, have been no in question. that spot. Right, right. Because most people in that job are going to be tall and handsome or tall and beautiful. Yeah. Because of our <laughs> and biases. Probably and not that good, not that <laughs> yeah. smart. Yeah. But like, you you know, it is an amazing thing how we, you just look around. It's like, well, why are all these tall men presidents of all these companies? Yeah. It's like, because we've decided something about them based on these. Absolutely. Yeah. And it's a, it's a number one hiring mistake people make is look and feel. All right. Both yeah. end with this, but you got to go further because this is also really important yeah. about culture. What do you mean look and feel? Well, do they look like a head of sales? 42 long, white teeth, <laughs> you know, perfect hair, all that kind of thing. That's what a head of sales looks well, like. Well, and that is but how that's the president has said he hires, by the way, for whatever that's worth. The yeah, president no, he's, has he's, said he hires that way. He, you know, somebody had a great line about that, which is he hires like he's casting for The Apprentice, yes, <laughs> which no. is exactly it's that. It's true, yeah, which yeah. is one of the things that drives me crazy um, about you know one of the thousand things. But so how do you avoid it though, Ben? How do you avoid it? And how do you avoid it at your, you know, you can't hire every single position in every single company that you're, so how do you train that out of people? Yeah, look, and we, we all fall into it. So l- let me kind of talk about the general and then, you know, more on the diversity yeah. case. So in general, it, it's all about preparation. Uh, and how do you prepare for the interview? Because if you don't know what you're looking for, guess what? You're going to hire the person who looks apart. Um, yes. And so you have to get into it. And so we have, and, and it's one of the most complex things I think that I work with CEOs on is, well, how do you hire a CFO if you've never been a CFO? How do you hire a Japanese interpreter if you don't know Japanese? Like this is a very difficult thing to prepare for. Um, so, you know, what we have, I'm like, look, we're going to have you meet five CFOs we think are good. I want you to ask them 
Very hard questions. What's the difference between a good CFO and a great CFO? Why do you think that? How do you test for it in an interview? All that kind of thing. I want you, you got to get deep with them on how to do that. And then of all those things they say, and they're not all going to say the same things, which things are most important to your company? And like hone in on how you test for that and just that. And you just have to ignore the other things. And then you're off, your focus is off what they look like at that point or what they sound like. Now, on the diversity thing, I'll tell you the story on it. So if you look at diversity in hiring, here's the problem is any organization, you walk into any organization, there's a woman manager, there's going to be a lot of women working there. You have Asian manager, a lot of Asians, African-American, a lot of african People know how to hire themselves. I know what I'm good at. I value it highly and I can test for it in an interview. And so that's the, that's the crux of the mechanism that blows up diversity. So we have the problem at Andreessen Horowitz early on. You know Margaret, um, she ran marketing. She had all women working for her. Frank Chen had all Asians working for him, the whole thing. So I go to Margaret, I'm like, Margaret, what's in your criteria? What, where, what's in your profile where no men can get a job working in marketing? Like, what do they all fail on? And she looks at me and she says, helpfulness. And I'm like, oh, snap. I know very few helpful men. But here was a really stupid thing for us as an organization. We're a venture capital. We're a services organization. That's our business, helping, like being helpful. And that's a real skill. Like, can I anticipate what you need before you say anything? Like, how many people can do that? That's a, that's a high bar. Nobody else had that in their profile. So when you think about developing the preparation for the interview, you have to think, do I have perspectives from people who are not me? And what do they know? What would they hire for that position? Do I understand it? Can they teach me how to test for it? Um, and then if I do that, then guess what? You get diversity automatically. Like we have automatic diversity at Andreessen Horowitz. I don't have any quotas, any program, any head of diversity, any anything. We just profile and prepare in a diverse way 180 people were 52% women. I didn't even care, but I do care that everybody came in on the same criteria and they all have the same opportunity once they get there. And that's very different than going, I need to have 20 X percentage black people. Of y. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because yeah. then, then, then when you come in, everybody looks at you and go, oh, you went in through the side door. You know, and so they start treating you differently. You have to reprove yourself on things and all that dumb stuff. It's an easier, not easier problem easy problem but easier problem at a firm like yours it's a really hard problem in a massive company yeah well, you have to change the process right? it's a really yeah. hard problem to oh well once it gets to that size then it is yeah it's a it's really hard, hard problem it, yeah. to you know i because i'm pro affirmative action because mm -hmm. I, it's a really hard pro at this point it's a really hard problem right to solve if you if if and I understand this looking at someone like that. I understand that argument. So I've read the books. I've been, yeah. People you and I both know have sent me the books. Like I understand the, yeah. the whole thing. Yeah. But I don't know what's come up with a better solve. Yeah. So look, I think the real solve is you have to be committed to getting the best talent. And, you know, look, big companies, this is a problem with big companies in general, speaking as a guy who like starts little companies is you get to a certain size and the business is so good that you can get away with doing stupid stuff. And that includes hiring like subpar people and you end up with no diversity because you don't really have to get the best and all that kind of thing. But if you have to get the best, 
then it's worth investing in a hiring process that can see all the talent. That, that's its process outcome. Yeah. It's a great outcome that happens yeah. that you get diversity, but you're not going into it purely for that. No, we're going into it to get the best. Yeah, absolutely. And it turns out that if you yeah. genuinely go try to get the best, you end up with a diverse group. 100%. Well, yeah, no question, no question. And that, so that's a gr- that's a great place to end. Well, uh, uh, yeah, yeah, aspirational. Yes. Ed, what were you gonna say? Yeah, well, I, well, I, I go on for too long. You can't. No, you're not. Um, so you know, one of the guys um, we hired, we were looking for somebody who was great at relationships um, because it was a relationship job. Now, most venture capital firms would never even value that as a thing, but because we were looking for that, we end up with an African American kid who used to work for Jermaine Dupree as a sound engineer. So people talk to me about Pipeline. I'm like, well, are you looking there? Um, And he's literally the best relationship guy in Silicon Valley. And we just knew, I knew to look for that criteria because I knew relationships was a real thing. Um, But if you don't know that, you miss that guy. And and you miss a a competitive advantage. So Ben's two books, The Hard Thing About Hard Things and the new one, What You Do Is Who You Are, are filled with... Uh, him being willing to put out difficult problems and express um, solutions that you haven't thought of before and that aren't typical. And the new book is him modeling a bunch of uh, disparate uh, and diverse leaders and how they uh, looked at these problems. Then Ben draws lessons from what they did. And so I would highly recommend these books Ben, man, your uh, your life's fascinating to me, and uh, I'm I'm endlessly fascinated by what, by what you and Mark do together, and by your partnership. And uh, thanks for taking the time and sharing your All wisdom. Right. Yes, no, appreciate it. It's uh, great, great fun. Thank Where you. can people find you on social media? Um, so I'm uh, B Horowitz on Twitter and uh, B Horowitz zero on Instagram and. Ben Horowitz on Facebook. I don't think I knew the Instagram piece. I have yeah. to get I, I don't do much on Instagram. I'm, I'm not good looking. I don't take a lot of pictures. Ah, uh, please. You're not good looking made by, by a, a, yeah. uh, an outmoded conventional standard. <laughs> yes, by right. an outmoded conventional standard. All right, everybody. Thanks for listening. You can find me at uh, Brian Koppelman on Twitter. You can email me at themomentbk at gmail.com, and I'll see you next time.